Please hold whilst we connect you to Redacted. Hi, this is Louis Mills. And this is Fraser Greenfield. And this is Benjamin Huber. Benjamin Huber. Benjamin Huber. Benjamin Huber. Benjamin Huber. And you are listening to Benjamin Hubert is the visionary founder and creative force behind Layer, a cutting-edge design agency renowned for its innovative approach to industrial design, strategy, and branding. With a keen eye for detail and a passion for pushing the boundaries of design, Benjamin has led Layer Design to international acclaim. Today, we sit down with Benjamin to pull back the layers and find out what it takes to design tomorrow. But enough about that. Who is Benjamin Hubert? I am a designer, really. As you said, I'm the founder of Layer, but I've been a designer for 17, 18 years. I'm a Londoner, I think it's important as well. I love London. I live in London. The studio is in London. I run a team of about 30 designers, engineers, researchers, and brand experts. My day in, day out is designing a huge and wide range of things from apps to products to services to experiences and installations and brands. Oh, shout out to London. So how did you discover the field of industrial design? Almost by accident, really. Like everyone, when they're in earlier education, you study art. Art is your first introduction to more formal creativity, putting pen to paper, paint to pad. And it's only a little bit later that a little bit of design work crept into our syllabus at school. And I started designing things like walking robots and tourist submarines and things like that at school. Actually pretty inspired by the Royal College of Arts vehicle program and started messing around with that type of thing and accidentally, to my point, studied industrial design at Loughborough University, so industrial design technology, because I thought I was going to try and design more vehicles and then quickly found out on almost day one that they didn't do any vehicle design on the course. (laughs) Slightly mortified, but it makes sense in the end because I'm quite a rational person and predominantly industrial design is problem-solving oriented versus styling. And you could say that some auto and transport work is quite heavily styling oriented. And so it fit me in the end, worked out for the best. And that's how I accidentally became an industrial designer. You graduated from Loughborough University. Did you get working straight to? Did you find an internship? What happened there? I spent my third year before working at two agencies, a very small three, four man band working out of the top floor of a school just outside of Coventry, a little firm called Small Fry by name and nature. Then I went to work for a slightly larger consultancy, more like 150 people for some of that year out called DCA. And so all in just over a year between those years of the university. And then actually went back to DCA when I graduated. Interesting. So you worked at two different consultancies. And then from what I understand, you made the jump to start your own studio. Is that correct? Almost. It is what most people think, and maybe that's what I suggested I did. I did four or five years of further agency work. I worked for DCA for a couple of years. Then I moved down from the Midlands, a couple of hours outside of London for anyone overseas listening to this. Then I started at a little branding agency, Seymour Powell, quite an old school story, industrial design firm. They're all TV and things. And then Tangerine, where Johnny Ive did his first work. And then after four or five years, I sort of quit the day job. 
in and around that time, I was making prototypes, building little things, making inroads with some companies that I was building relationships with. So there's definitely grey area. But 2010, after graduating in 2006, is when I formally started the studio under Benjamin Huber. Sounds like a lot of jumping around through some different consultancies and branding agencies and trying a bunch of different things. But when you were doing this, did you have a strategy in that period between graduating and working up until starting Leia during this grey period? Yes and no. Yes, in that I had strategies, knowing that they sort of changed over time. When I first graduated and started at this larger agency, I was like, right, ambitious probably a bit too ambitious, probably a bit too big for my own boots, and thought, okay, well, I'm going to work my way up quickly to director, creative director, I'm going to work through all the agencies, and that was my mandate to myself. And then it kind of changed when I exhibited a few little bits of my own work, and I realized that there was an opportunity to do that, there was a platform for it, there was reception to it. And then I was like, okay, well, maybe I can do a few things of my own. I don't know if entrepreneurship really was ingrained in us through university. That was something I learned and was exposed to just by a bit of trial and error. But as soon as I realized that there was a vehicle for that, that there was space for me to explore that, that's when the strategy shifted. And I was thinking two years out from uni, how can I do this full time? How can I build an entity? How can I just very basically sustain myself and do things that are creative, that I love, that have an expression and actually just don't take huge amounts of time. That was why I started with bits of lighting, bits of furniture, things that you could ideate, build, make, show, sell in a quite compressed amount of time. And as we all know on this show, being industrial designers or design related, design takes a long time. So two, three, four years is not unheard of for complex products. And I knew that from working in the agency space, which is why I was like, right, what's the antithesis of that? Beautiful new heirloom style products that last a long time, simplicity, craftsmanship, homewares, driven. Wow. How did that first freelance project come along? Was it through talking with people or did you just apply yourself to something that you wanted to try? The way I found into building my own work stream was through exhibitions. Ah. I exhibited at London Design Festival at some of the bigger shows, 100% Design and things like that, when they existed. Some of those things no longer do exist. I took little booths. I remember building a booth made of actually connected to this show with acoustic foam, undulating acoustic foam. And I tried to coat this entire stand, show a few lamps and things like that. And it all went yellow. It was white foam. It all went yellow in a space of about three hours. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I didn't know what UV stability was at that point, but I did soon after. But the point is, I was being scrappy, hustling, putting on little shows within wider shows and putting my name on the booth and just saying I'm doing some of these things building relationships, particularly with PR and press contacts, winning a few awards. And then a few small brands started to say, hey, because they were at the same shows. And they were like, would you like to sign a lamp or can we license that product from you? And I was hustling like crazy. Sending out all the cold emails. (laughs) How did you establish a relationship with that first big client? I've never really been freelance. I've always been creating things that were under my name and for or with a company rather than plugging into a design team and freelancing for a month, three months, six months, and then you're an extension of their team. I was a team of one that companies were coming to. That might sound really arrogant, but it was also slightly accidental. 
I didn't really know what freelancing was in the sense of going in and working with other teams. I hadn't built the relationship with recruiters and things like that. And so it was a bit of a haphazard start. But the simple truth of it was some companies were coming to us and say, hey, would you do a thing? Will you do it on royalties? We'll give you a very, very small upfront amount. And this was while I had a day job. This is in that four or five year period after graduation where I had a little bit of constant income. So I could take risks on some of the other things that basically there was no return on it. There was a little return on some of it, but only like five, seven years later, once the product sales kicked in on those things. And we're not talking about you know things that are made in the millions. We're talking about things that are made in the thousands. The return was very small, but what it did do is it gave me a medium to communicate through. So a portfolio, essentially constantly building and editing and then rebuilding a website and the presence. And those relationships I built there were not the network of other agencies and designers to work with. It was more like homewares and furniture brands that might want a little bit of something doing, but with a new designer name attached. Sounds like a plan. Hey everyone, this episode is sponsored by PCBWay the go-to destination for printed circuit board prototyping, low-volume production, and PCB assembly. If your team is working on electronics and you're in need of prototype PCBs, I can't recommend PCBWay enough. You can get a quote instantly, even if your circuit board schematics are not finished yet. They can also help you with injection-molded, 3D-printed, sheet metal, or vacuum-cast prototypes. PCBWay is the circuit board prototyper of choice for companies like Samsung, Siemens, Honeywell, Tesla, and Apple. But you don't have to be a big company to use their services. I've personally used their service to instantly get quotes and have prototype PCBs delivered in a timely manner. On top of all that, PCBWay is so excited to be working with us, they're offering a special discount just for our listeners. When you get a quote from PCBWay, be sure to use our promo code Redacted. 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 For a special discount on us, you can find PCBWay in our episode description or go to PCBWay.com. Looking back in your early days, what do you think the layer team could have done better and what do you think that you did well? In the early days, it wasn't even layer. In the early days, and we're talking about the first five years of being independent, it was Benjamin Huber or Benjamin Huber Limited. And so that was a team of two to about six or seven people over a period of five years. What could we have done better? I mean, probably everything. <laughs> it was scrappy. It was a really big learning experience, just starting to manage and have a team. Like I never really understood or knew what to do or what that was. We we're really gung-ho and probably could have broken some slightly better deals in some of the projects. It was definitely a big trade-off on building marketing equity rather than financial. So it was a long-term play, but we probably could have been a bit more sensible with some of the projects that we took on. I understand it's a pretty big jump going from working with yourself to being a director, but did you feel that your journey up until then, you had some um, management experience and being able to nurture new starters or people not as experienced as you? My managerial experience was zero. I mean, it probably showed. And HR is still the thing that I'm personally learning and understanding. It's a really different muscle. It is creative in a way, but it's not traditional creativity. And I think a lot of creatives just aren't that great at it. I've sometimes learned the hard way, jumping ahead a little bit. My role now is very, very split. It is 
creative, but it is commerce. It is in part HR and people, not in that order, really. Increasingly, it's people, creativity and commerce in that priority sense. The best way of learning anything is by doing. And we have that mindset in the studio as well, where people are thrown into projects, they're supported by the team around them, but they learn additional software skills, sensitivity skills, functional analysis, manufacturing understanding on the project. You can go on courses, you can learn those things separate and in theory, but there is no better way to do that than in practice. Yeah, completely agree. Mm. You had a process clearly when you were on your own, and then you had a process now when you have a team. What is the layer design process and how is that different to the Benjamin Humor design process? Well, our process now is pretty locked down. Layer is eight years old. Benjamin Hubert Limited was five. Cumulatively, that's 13 years of learning, refining, improving, step-by-step methodology that's been built, increasing how impactful the process is and how it manages people's time as well. That is a really disciplined process of research, ideation, development, prototyping, testing, failing, repeating, and then manufacturability and going through the DFM and working a factories process. Before and earlier, it was a little bit more fluid things overlapped a little bit more and perhaps were less disciplined but i've always been very pragmatic structure and process is one of my strengths so that's always been part of how we work and how you can deliver quality because rigor equals quality process equals rigor and so the more on the lock your process is the higher the chance your quality will hit the levels that you want to Along the way, if you do that, you're managing expectations and relationships with the partners and brands and people that come to you and work with you. And so it's all about process. Even in the early days, we talked about process-driven. It doesn't sound like rocket science, but it was one of the umbrella values that we talked about when it was under my name. We don't need to do so much of that now because we have so much more demonstrable case studies and portfolio pieces and products on the market where a lot of that speaks for itself. The business has matured a lot in terms of disciplines too. So in the early days, it was really industrial design and perhaps a little narrow, even in that skill set. But now industrial design is a broad church and it is a broad topic, which we do occupy, but also we have engineering, we have brand, we have research. It means that our process is truly holistic and we can connect those dots and the projects we work on are covering all those bases, particularly if a startup or scale-up comes to us. We're delivering a full holistic experience, whereas in the early days, it would have been an isolated product experience. I think we hear that a lot. It seems like a lot of the best designers cultivate a process, stick to it, and it's visible in just about every part of the job. To counter that point, I was once told by an old mentor of mine that every process should be some variation of imitate, standardize, and then innovate. (laughs) And anything more than that is probably more complex than it needs to be, unless it's something about quality control, which is, to quote him, someone else's problem. (laughs) I'd probably add one thing to that, and that would be automate is one of the biggest parts of process because you're just cutting out a lot of the shit that you don't have to think about, and then you really focus on the larger issues and things that need to be worked out. To that point, Ben, how do you feel about starting a project by not copying, but imitating something you've never done before, and then also automating processes that you may not want to do. I don't know if imitate is in our vocabulary in the studio or mindset. 
I don't disagree that there's a lot of stuff out there and sometimes you're not truly inventing that you are plugging a gap in the market and clearly there are things around it and occasionally standing on the shoulder of giants, maybe something's been created in the mid-century and it's been reinvented now and there is definitely some of that. But I definitely don't agree with the person that talked about some of those themes in the sense that some of those things are other people's problem because we live in a day and age now where people expect end-to-end solutions. They expect people to be able to step in and just solve. And that's my personal mindset. Always have an answer for something, always have a contact, always be able to deliver. And even if it's outside of your scope, you know, you can do two things. You can either extend the scope or you can just bring other smart people into it. But the point is, real designers ship. And to ship, you have to be a researcher, a designer, an engineer, a sourcing person, a quality control a hustler, a commerce person, a marketing person. And you have to be able to join all that together because that's what it takes. Particularly on a hardware front, and hardware is hard, you have to be able to cover all those bases to really land it and deliver it and actually get people to like and use it in a meaningful volume and way. That's a really good answer. This is Benjamin Huber. Benjamin Huber. Benjamin Huber. Benjamin Huber. And you are listening to... When we talk about layer and we compare you to, say, your competitors or your colleagues, if you want to be more optimistic, <laughs> what do you think is unique and valuable about the layer process of doing things? I would consider them as all of the above, really, colleagues and competitors in a fairly healthy way. I think competition breeds innovation and it breeds pushing your quality. We've really set our stall out where we straddle this point between lifestyle, craft, and long-lasting things that maybe I would do a little bit more of it earlier in my career, so softer, homewares, furniture, craftsmanship piece, and true strategic, innovative agency work. We sit in the middle of those two points where, for the most part, each end of those scales is pretty occupied, and there's lots of great people doing that. But to have the sensitivity and understanding and warmth of the craft end of things, but the intelligence and savviness of the agency side is our pitch and why lots of our products look and feel the way they do. The other layer to that is that we do occupy a pretty holistic range of services, if you want to be quite black and white about it, where we are truly delivering a meaningful, impactful experience because it's every touch point and introduction that the consumer has to an experience and considers everything on the stakeholder of the brand side, manufacturing side, because we're delivering a brand product, sometimes a spatial experience with that and a strategy that wraps it all together. Often what happens in agency world is that gets farmed out. Those individual strands or layers gets farmed out to different people and they work together. But that's really difficult to get that joined up consistently and with quality and in a compelling way because everyone has their own way of working, communication, geographies, all of those types of challenges. So we've been very mindful of trying to bring all of that under one roof so that we can do something which is super joined up. As an organization, let's say you have a team running a project, how do you keep everyone, including the stakeholders, on that united path and consistent with that holistic vision? Communication is the very short answer of that. We use every communication channel imaginable, Slack, WeChat, all forms of platform and email and calls and all those things. And it's just a very collaborative, constant stream of back and forth. 
that is the simple answer for that. Awareness and expectations and sharing more than less. Spinning cat, you know, not being precious about the work and ensuring that it's not just in our minds the final result that people are coming to us for. It is the journey. And the journey is really rich because it's a learning experience. It's about sharing our process with their teams. Perhaps our process can influence their teams. Perhaps it helps build their teams. And really the value is in just being exposed to how to truly create great new products and services that will drive revenue and happiness in and with the audience that you're appealing to. That's about working closely. Some good points about communication, and I'm sure that's with your own team, with your clients, and as well, the rest of the world. But can you explain a little bit about the thought leading process that Leia puts forward? We try to be opinionated and we try to have an agenda around sustainability and how products are used and if are things necessary and how to find opportunities. This is about asking hard questions at the beginning of a project. It isn't just about paying lip service to a brief or remit and just pumping out the next thing because somebody asked for it. Thought leading is about creating an agenda and driving that forward. And collaboratively talking about it, because those discussions can be hard, but the answer is always much more beneficial than where the conversation has started from. How does that work being an opinionated service provider when the customer really just wants what they ask for versus leading the horse to water? It's a great question. And it's actually something we discuss a little bit in the studio. And sometimes the companies that work with us talk about it too. We're a little bit less white label than some agencies. Our thought process and even crudely style is a bit more red thread consistent through projects. So it feels like quite a consistent brand, not just a service provider that appeals to certain people and it doesn't appeal to others. You know, we would much rather be in the camp of driving a certain point of view and bringing like-minded people on board with that and vice versa, us learning from those people and adapting a little bit our style. We do do things that we don't publish. That is the other part to this answer. Yes, okay, you'll see a very moody, stylistic, slightly fashion-oriented, lifestyle-driven approach to our work, particularly when you go on our website. That is about 10% of our output. Sometimes we are supporting consultants and agents in the traditional sense, and sometimes people want to pull our agenda more front and center. That's where we have the partnerships where we're on the communication platform. We're helping to drive a point of view through social media, through traditional comms, and we might be doing an exhibition together, and we're using each other's platform to help elevate awareness around whatever it is that's launching or being created. They aren't necessarily mutually exclusive, those two approaches, but if you want to be a bit black and white about it, They are two different ways of working, and we do straddle those points and many points in between. You take on a little bit of chaff work, but most of it is people coming to you that know what they're going to get because they've seen your work before. They really trust you to take it to somewhere where you both enjoy. But how do you navigate the other work that comes in that could be a little bit less exciting? Well, I absolutely definitely wouldn't call it chaff work. (laughs) And I wouldn't say it's less exciting. It's just different. And intellectually, no less stimulating, no less interesting, no less demanding. Variety is the spice of life. Just doing the same thing all of the time will get old pretty quickly. I think we probably would have changed something or I would have changed something in our approach or what I or we do completely if we kept doing the same thing. One of the reasons 
that I switched and pivoted the business from Benjamin Hubert into Leia was because I was being asked to do the same thing all the time. I was asked to do the same kind of chairs and furniture and accessories, all that kind of stuff in a very similar style. And it just got a bit repetitive, even after five years, which is quite a short amount of time in any creative industry. You didn't want to get podcast. And there was a little bit of that, the chair guy. I have the most amount of respect for people like Jasper Morrison, which are like the chairperson, if you want to be really crude about it. And they're excellent at what they do and they have a very distinctive style. Yeah, or Mark Hamill, who was Luke Skywalker. We talk about chaff work and we label chaff work as if you're running a business, you don't necessarily want to do it, but you have to do it. Low value work that doesn't necessarily lead to more high value work. How do you navigate doing it or not doing it and making sure that you don't get typecast like Mark Hamill? <laughs> Great example. Honestly, I don't think we do it. It's the first time I've heard the phrase as well. So I get it. We coined it. I did you? Okay, that'd be why. I should listen to your show more often. <laughs> we work on a project basis rather than a can you fill in for a couple of days because we need more designers in our team or we need to expand the things we're doing we have a minimum project that we take on so inherently it just removes that smaller piecemeal work our minimum project is three months And then our maximum project might be three years, you know, if we're working on something through manufacturing. But inherently, that just means that you're not doing the, I guess you could crudely call freelance work, where you're coming in and you're supporting an existing entity just to do things they just can't quite get to. I think that's quite an unconscious move, just to be not something that we really get asked to do. It's not like we say no to it, particularly. We don't get asked to do it. And I think that's because our stall is pretty clearly set out. We talk about these sort of things as having a business strategy and you didn't want to get typecast. What was the direction you wanted to have layer? And then how have you pivoted since if you pivoted at all to make sure that you don't get stuck in this rut like a lot of other agencies do? The obvious answer is opening up more types of expertise. You've got the agencies out there that only do the front-end industrial design work and they will always hand over at a certain point, which means that they might do a little bit of research, some ideation, a little bit of development renderings, and then start again. It means a few things. Their cycles are much quicker, which I think is quite frustrating and quite demanding. They don't get to do the bits that occupy different parts of their psychology and headspace. If you did ideation all the time, you burn out really quickly. It's a really demanding part of the process. It's one part of your brain you're constantly using. If you just did that for a year, I think you'd be cooked. <laughs> for us, it's about making sure that we can move across some of the phases. But really, you can only do that when you build your team up with different types of expertise. I suppose in the earlier days when we didn't communicate those things and we didn't have the team, we would do a little bit more front-end work. And as the business has matured and as we've communicated all our different aspects, we do much more at the end-to-end process. And it's much more fulfilling for us. I know it's more rewarding for the team. And one of the things that people talk about that work in the team at Layer is that variety and the quality of clients are our biggest attributes as an outfit. This is Benjamin Huber. Benjamin Huber. Benjamin Huber. Benjamin Huber. And you are listening to... To stay up to date with the show and see what else we've got going on, be sure to follow us on Instagram and TikTok at redacted underscore design POD. 
subscribe to the podcast and tell your friends. Cheers. We talk about trend setting a lot and Leia is definitely someone who is, well, I say someone as an organization, a team is definitely known for setting trends and sometimes breaking them. There's a lot of trend catalogs like WGSN and different product and fashion trends. What kind of tools do you use at Leia to follow trends and eventually start trends? I think some of it happens organically. When you put ambitious, smart people together in the room, inherently, they're always looking for the new. They're restless. They don't want to repeat or imitate what's come before. They hold themselves to account a little bit more. In terms of a process, we fill lots of different buckets in to drive opportunities, find the insights, drive the opportunities. We will do a lot of the things that I'm sure you guys have personally done and talked about, which is talk to people, interesting people, we'll shadow them, we'll follow them. We really like looking at reviews. The review culture is very helpful for us in terms of really driving the agenda of challenges, frustrations, market opportunity. We visit trade shows, we show at trade shows quite a lot. We look at fashion, we look at interiors quite a lot. So parallel disciplines to industrial design, we try and avoid the trope of just looking at things like Pinterest and stuff like that for industrial design themes because it's tiring. You end up repeating the same motif across projects. I'm also of that mindset. Are you suggesting that in your office, everyone isn't wearing grey, black and white? (laughs) I don't know if that drives how trendsetting or not people are, but if you look at my wardrobe, my wardrobe is definitely the Barack Obama approach of never have a decision about what you're wearing because it's all the same. (laughs) But that said, no, the team is pretty diverse. They express themselves how they like. We do have a little bit of fun around when we do shoots and things like that. Everyone dresses in black and we like to have a bit of a styled presence where it feels curated and it feels considered just like our work does. That could be something that moves across different parts of your business. Industrial designers are unusual creatures. They are very creative, but they're not artists. They are very technical, but they are not your traditional engineers. We're talking about ID, particularly on here. Sometimes their expression in their work isn't necessarily their expression on their personal fashion. Whereas in art, you could say that some of those rules are a bit more consistent. We're going to do some black and white stuff here, but a lot of artists are very expressive in everything they do. And they project their persona of their work through their choices of home fashion and all those things. Whereas I guess what I'm trying to say is that industrial designers can be a little bit more introverted. A black t-shirt and black trousers, you can find the work is the most expressive, interesting, new that you've ever seen. Yeah, I'd say pretty similar to what I've come across. Generally, nobody's uh, too wildly dressed up. Apart from Fraser Greenfield, he, I find, dresses very flamboyantly. (laughs) Christmas sweater every day. Yeah. (laughs) In Australia. (laughs) For me, every day is cold as down here. I grew up in a desert, so... Anything below 35, I'm going to have to rug up. (laughs) So which one do you lean to? Are you more of a containment or are you more expressive like an artist, would you say? Or has it changed over time? If you're this way inclined and you want to put my name in Google, you'll see a definite change in my fashion. And my non-designer friends do enjoy bringing this up. So you'll find a lot more colour, mustard trousers and all this kind of thing when I was much younger. And then as I got older, I sort of became a bit more self-conscious, perhaps. 
what went wrong? And started doing the more black uniform serious designer thing. I'm very much a bit of both. On one hand, I like minimalism and reduction and things like that are quite core to who I am. I'm sitting at the moment in my partner's study and it's an eclectic mix of beautiful colours and memories and mix and match materials. But if you looked at my workspace at home, it is monochrome. It is all black with a little bit of adventurous grey every now and then. Okay, I feel kind of upset because I'm looking at it now and it definitely looks like me when I was in my early 20s with a black, grey, white and orange trim. This is weird. This is very uncomfortable for me. (laughs) All right. Well, we could bring it away from fashion for a little bit, maybe. (laughs) You were somewhat known for being heavy on Google advertising for layer. What was your thinking process in your advertising design services? And what's changed on that front since then, as far as how you advertise, how you get the word out there and get the best clients? We've never done any formal advertising. Everything has been organic through a network of PR. Every link you look at, every article is an editorial piece where we just built relationships, whether it's Fast Company, whether it's Wallpaper, Disease, you name a creative-related cultural platform. We've built really great relationships with the editors. It's been really organic. That store was set out pretty early when I was on my own doing exhibitions and carried through to today where we always talk to people ahead of launches to maximize exposure. Awareness is really, really important. There's lots of great agencies out there, lots of great work being done, but you don't know about it unless you can hit some places where people are actually looking. And it's competitive and it can be challenging. And the world is changing too. Anecdotally, and there's a slight sidebar to this. The days of just seeing new stuff. Oh, cool. That's new stuff. It's a bit gone. Making sure it really moves the agenda along does have relation to socioeconomics, to sustainability, to the state of the world. It's incredibly important. Just the next nice piece of consumer electronics gets much less traction now than it used to pre-pandemic because I think the world has woken up. The world is aware that harder choices need to be made on an individual basis, on a global basis. And so we really now pick and choose which projects to communicate, where to communicate them, and are also at the mercy of our relationships of the editors. We work hard on that to maintain those connections. That's been a work in progress over the last 13 years. What is your PR strategy to make sure that Leia is given the best representation possible? We work hard on the content we create. We're very mindful around the type of photography and video that we create. As much as we can, really strong content around lifestyle-driven, studio-based photography, really well shot. We probably take more photos than some, and we put these in really consumable packages for people that are interested in our work. Do you have a go-to photographer for those sort of product shoots? So we've worked with a few photographers over the years, and they are a very small group that we use. Now we consistently use one, and I personally do the art direction for the shoot. I'll do a day shoot, two-day shoot here and there. The team will help me location shoot, fashion source, model source. We use photography and video more than we use renderings. Making sure we aren't just creating vaporware, 
we do a few concept projects where we aren't building a thing and you do end up using a few renders. But where we don't have to do that, we're shooting real products because I think there's a real tendency amongst agencies to use renderings and, and sort of say that they're launching things and it just doesn't feel real. And the product in reality doesn't actually really match the renderings because the renderings are really slick and hyper real. And so I'm a very big advocate of actually shooting things. People ask us, are they photos or are they renderings? Because our style is clean and we really focused on creating great quality things. That's the foundation that Layer is built on. And that's why, particularly in the early days, all those editors really enjoyed our work because we gave them great content to feature. That gives me a great, well, maybe a PTSD flashback of, I had a brief a long time ago and they had given a throwaway line where they wanted anyone who had anything to do with this product to know whether they were looking at a rendering or a photograph. And I had to put in a feature that in real life would never, ever be capable of being rendered. Do you ever put those sort of featureisms where like, you know that this will look different in a photograph versus a render, but that's something only a professional in the industry would pick up on, whether it's dust or a perfectly straight edge, which in real life would be a curve or that little bit of reflection. How do you make photos more than real? It's a really basic answer, but we use real human models. The human hand, for example, despite the assets you can find now and the rendering platforms you can use, it's still really difficult to not make it look uncanny. A real human hand gives both scale, texture, and realism. You can extend that to the body, the face. But what I mean is bring in a human quality to make something human or humane. It does all the work for you. You know, we don't put it in every photo. We might put it in three of 15. But just interspersing those gives it enough grounding and realism to not have to do that on every shot. You brought up the uncanniness in hands. It reminded me of AI. Does Leia use any AI for any of the design process? Have you tried it and had a bit of a play around with it? I'd say we use it in two ways. One is Adobe Suite, Creative Suite. There are lots of AI tools that we use now, whether it's smart extending of backgrounds, whether it's manipulating a face. There are lots of really good tools which have come on leaps and bounds in recent versions, broadly fueled by a slightly more intelligent approach to analysis, which you could label as AI. We do use things like Midjourney sometimes. More is a fun fact rather than a serious aspect of the process these days because you can decompress for half an hour, put in some prompts and see how ridiculous the return is just to shake up your mindset a little bit rather than going, here's some actual concepts that we would consider putting forward. We would never do that. A, I think it's too lazy. B, I think it's misdirected energy. C, you can't actually use the asset that well because you don't actually own it, firstly, so IP is a real issue. And secondly, particularly for something like Midjourney, I know there are cat-driven things out there. But when we're working through our process, the early assets get nurtured, iterated on, and you build on them versus something like Midjourney, which is a bit of a like one-liner. I agree. It's fun to sort of play around with, and it's good to see some different things to give you more ideas. But you could never just give somebody a rendering from Midjourney and just say, like, it'll probably be something like this because it's probably not in the basis of any reality or linked with your goals or anything like that. This is Benjamin Huber. Benjamin Huber. Benjamin Huber. Benjamin Huber. Benjamin Huber. And you are listening, and you are listening to. to, 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 to what challenges do you think Leia will be facing in the near future and how do you plan on tackling them? I think we're surrounded by challenges for the now, not even next. 
How do you create more mindful output? How do you create something good for the person and planet? That's a huge issue. How do you really streamline production? How do you actually get things that are recyclable, biodegradable? You know, there's a lot of lip service to this. In theory, lots of products are able to be cradle to cradle, but the reality is that's still quite difficult. A lot of people don't care. It's steps you're asking people to take. The challenges are around not just traditional design, but communicating the benefits and values of that. Sometimes you've got to trade up, buy less but better. And that's really difficult because the financial pressures people are under now are greater than ever in the last few years, particularly in the UK. There's a perfect storm happening at the moment where everyone's like, well, fast fashion, fast products, that's not good. Everyone's starting to broadly agree on that. And I mean everyone. I don't mean the educated, the few, the early adopters, the designers, which have always thought that way, give and take. I mean the general populace is coming around to that idea. There are certain brands starting to do a bit better, but often at a higher price tag. It's like the impossible question. How do you say to someone, look, we need everyone to be more mindful. I know that there's a financial pressure point at the moment, but don't worry about that. Be more mindful trying to get things that are accessible, affordable, and don't have impact on the world around us. It's a work in progress. I don't think anyone's really cracked that yet, but we keep trying to hit that mark in the projects we work on. That is what I would say occupies a lot of my headspace beyond the more granular challenges that any business faces. When it comes to sustainability, and this is something I've worked extensively in, At what point do you say, this isn't a recycling problem? What's good for recycling isn't good for the climate at a lot of points. At what point do you just say, look, you're going to have a lot of compromises. If you want a good, sustainable product, you're going to have to write a letter to your MP. And how do you hold down that conversation where you just go like, there is no good environmental solution here. You just have to pick a bad option. It depends what you consider as a good environmental solution, because Yes, materiality, recyclability, biodegradability, returning the product from the end to the beginning, all of those things are an aspect of it. But keeping something for a long time, repairing it and maintaining it, having something that, okay, you are going to have to dispose of in the end, and actually it's not very easy to recycle, but I've kept it for 15 to 20 years. That offset of buying more of the same thing that's recyclable is probably better for the world. But there's always a way into being more mindful if you prioritize and have a hierarchy in place which makes sense for that product and you don't just try and force fit a certain approach to mindfulness. That said, it's always a discussion we have on projects and we're pragmatic. Any new product and service has to make sense from a commercial viability. It has to drive revenue. It has to have a healthy profit margin and it should be sustainable. It has to be both. If it's a tail that wags the dog, the dog doesn't go anywhere. It's got to be about revenue and business and commerce and thinking really smartly in that way and rewarding the company and the individual for investing and driving their business through design and good for the world. That's the commerce meets creativity, meets being mindful of the, it has to be an equal measure. When you create any product or service, as a creative, you have to balance both commerce and creativity and commerce and sustainability, ensuring that the individual company is rewarded for their investment in design, using design to drive their business forward, means that you have to hit a certain margin. It should appeal to a large amount of people. The return should be meaningful, should drive the business forward, but also be sustainable. It has to be an and situation. We don't live in a utopia. 
unfortunately, where the financial aspect isn't important. So we're really mindful of that. We like to deliver bank for bank. We like to strategize around market size and market opportunity. And, and we like to ensure the recyclability, sustainability, repairability, life cycle and lifespan of a product is hitting all the right notes to make sure we are working within today's challenge and thinking about tomorrow's even greater challenges. In 2023, you got a book published, written by Max Fraser. Why did you initiate that process to get your own book published for the studio? And what did that process look like? Firstly, if anyone ever thinks about creating or publishing a book, it's definitely a big consideration. I sort of threw myself into it and I've known Fiden, the publisher, for quite a while and we've always had casual chats about doing something. And then this is pre-pandemic, so probably 2018, 2019, sat down with them, thought about the idea of combining a manual and a monograph. So the manual half being when you're starting out or at any point in your career, how might you create your own studio? What are some of those steps? What are the pitfalls? What are the opportunities? Nobody really talks about that. So I was like, okay, well, there's an angle. And then slightly selfishly, just love the idea of creating a monograph for the first 10 years or so of the studio work. I've known Max for years throughout my career, right in the beginning, right in the early days to now. And he was a natural fit to write it. He's a curator and he's now actually editor of Dezine. It was an interesting process, but it was two years of collating, collecting, finding, harvesting and dismantling old hard drives and then rebuilding them to find some of the really early stuff. And then a whole world of editing podcasts and any type of media creation, 95% of the work is editing. It's a bit of a slog and it's pretty revealing and you've got to be really patient, which I'm not all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Was the personal archaeology the fun part? Fun is one way of saying it. It was pretty tough because it's quite an introspective process. You ask yourself lots of questions that you don't normally People don't think about all the things they've done intimately and which images to find that represent that and then finding them and going, that's not what I thought it looked like. Rewarding to some extent, but quite confronting. Would have been an interesting chance for a bit of self-reflection, looking through everything. Do you think it will help with advertising you as well, or it's more just out there for fun, just to be? Well, you guys are designers, so you know whenever you put anything out into the world, concept or production, idea or into people's hands, you never think it's finished. You always see the things and the flaws that other people don't, and they can keep you up at night. And when you're creating a book, you just have to draw a line at a certain point. This sounds really pessimistic and say, that's enough. That is a point where you're happy enough because frankly, satisfying any creative is really difficult, particularly when you're your own biggest critic. That was an interesting process. But the purpose of the book was, in my mind's eye, to help people like me. I've never had mentors. I've never had anything really to go to. I've had lots of people to look up to, right? Lots of very successful designers and creatives and architects and things like that that I've always admired. And now some of them are friends, but never really a go-to thing of going, oh, okay, this person did some things. And actually, it's not insurmountable. It's not this sort of wall that you feel when you see somebody reach a certain point. And Mostly that's the reason, but it is a great tool to give people. People love receiving it. We sent it to all of our friends and colleagues and everyone we've known over the years. And then it's really lovely to see when people buy it, post it, talk about it. We had some nice reviews. 
Design, I think, particularly running a business, can be quite lonely. You don't always get the opportunity to benchmark. You don't always get the opportunity to see how other people do it and learn from them and it be a really open dialogue. And when you work on a project for many years and put it out there, you wonder how it will be received. And that's been a nice moment. But the point of the takeaway is more sharing is good. More sharing, more sharing, is, sharing, is, sharing is good, 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 good. Thanks, Benjamin, for joining us today. And for our listeners, don't forget to check the show notes for links to anything we've mentioned and discounts from our sponsor, PCP Way. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, this has been Redact. The number you have dialed has not been recognized. Please check and try again. The number you have dialed has been redacted. redacted, redacted.